Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. I'm Nikki Taylor. I'm the pastor at the Yellow Door House, um, neighbor at the Yellow Door House, community member at the Yellow Door House. Um, However you like to look at it, that is who I am. Um, And I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. I can hear myself really loud. Um, So... And thinking about how to kind of start off today, I know so many of you and so many of you I don't. So we're just going to kind of go through who we are and what do we do and what does that look like a little bit. Um, I am excited because my husband, Mike, and my two children, Savannah and Easton, are here, but also my mom is here. And so y'all say hi to Wanda. All right. Um, I'm excited that Wanda's here because here's the thing. Um, Spencer asked me to share about the Yellow Door House and then to just kind of get into the nitty gritty of incarnational ministry and what that can look like. Um, And so one of the things that we're going to talk about today is biblical advocacy. What does that look like? What does that look like in community? Um, How did Jesus model that? And I don't know anyone else in my life who has taught me more about advocating for someone else while also empowering them to advocate for themselves than my mom. So I'm excited that she's here. Um, But to um, kind of introduce the Yellow Door House, we were born out of really the dream of United City in a lot of ways to reach the city, to be on mission for the city, to understand um, that there were people um, here who were not always going to be reached in those very traditional ways that sometimes we see in the church. Um, And I want to be very clear, like I am a very big advocate and voice for the church at large. I think that there is space and room for every type of church that we have. They are needed. Um, I am encouraged by all different types of church. But I also recognize that when I felt the calling to the place that I felt called to, when I looked around, I recognized that the traditional view of church, this invite in to my space, my building, um, where I had control over, just was not the right fit, okay? Um, And so a lot of that dreaming came from um, us being a part of the start of United City. And so I'm excited to be back here this morning and in y'all's space. It's um, fun and rejuvenating and exciting. Um, So the Yellow Door House, we focus on three main things. We focus on dignity, hospitality, and truth. Dignity comes because we recognize that the Bible did not start in Genesis 3 at the fall of man. It just doesn't, right? It starts in Genesis 1, where we are created by God in his image. That is both a physical image a spiritual image, an emotional image. We are literally made in his image. And in that is inherent dignity that absolutely nobody on this planet can touch. I don't care what systems you have. I don't care um, like what you have to say about the life situations that people are in. The, The dignity that comes from the very beginning of Genesis is untouchable, period. Hospitality. We believe in relationships, y'all. That is where we 
live our lives. Our bread and butter of ministry is found in relationships, and relationships are messy. Um, They can be really chaotic. They can be um, exhausting sometimes, but they can also be joyful. They can be life-giving. They can be encouraging. They're all those things. It's just life. It's just doing life with people. It's as simple as that. Um, And truth, We believe that the scriptures have something to say, not only for when they were written, but for now. There is biblical truth that we can absolutely apply to every piece of our lives at this point. It is not something that we will back down from. And even when it makes for some hard and awkward conversations, we are more than willing in a loving manner to enter into those conversations and to have those talks and to learn together. We very much believe in a collective environment of learning um, and through those three main truths. Um, So Spencer asked me to kind of give you guys an idea of where we are right now and kind of where we're going. Um, In the very literal sense, we're in summer and we're headed into summer ministry. And so to give you a little bit of a background, if since you don't know me. I was doing ministry in Glenwood with kids long before we ever moved there. And so we are still very, very focused on the students and the kids that we worked with. And we acknowledge that that's really where our kind of tried and true place is in the community. And so even as we build as we've moved in and become community members and built relationships with adults and families, that um, we're going to continue to do a lot of the ministry that we once did in the space of children and students. So it's summertime. Um, Summer reading club starts on Tuesday. We want to um, be a space of where learning is fun, where it's exciting, where it's um, easy to come and grab a snack, you know, reach out, have some conversation. We're going to have, I don't know, probably seven to ten kindergartner through second graders, and we're going to read some books, and we're going to eat some snacks, and we're probably going to laugh, and we're just going to have a good time. Um, We are very, very blessed to partner with some wonderful organizations. So that helps us quite a bit. It's not, um, we could absolutely not do what we do if it was just us trying to figure out every piece of the puzzle. That would never work. Um, And so we have been blessed to be able to partner with um, Dana Carr, which a lot of y'all know. Um, She's wonderful. She's opened a rec center in Glenwood. It's given us a new space to be in. It's given us more room. Um, So we've been having some monthly gatherings, talk about things that um, affect our community and what Jesus has to say about that, which has been wonderful. We also have small groups that meet at the house. Um, Small groups really are my most comfortable space. It's where I enjoy being. Um, Like I said, we are a community of collective learners, and I think that's done best through small groups. And so that's really what we focus on in terms of spiritual formation. To give you an idea of where we're going, we will be starting, and I'm very, very excited about this, a GED training program hopefully by January. My hope was September, but I think I got a little excited on that one. So by January, um, the purpose behind that is 
we believe that we want to empower and lift up and just give us space for the things that are very holistically needed in our community. And we recognize that education is one of them. And so while we have our summer reading club for our young kids, we also recognize that there needed to be a space of adult learning as well. And so that's what we're stepping into and we're super, super excited about that. Um, other than that, we do a lot of barbecues. We do a lot of sitting around a table and having conversation, a lot of getting to know people. It's COVID was not um, what I would have chosen, but I have learned over the past two years to really just embrace the rhythm that that kind of forced on the community. Um, I think the Lord very much has worked through that and in that. And um, my very type A, I like to have a plan personality. Um, that's great. And there's, I am all for having a plan. I have lots of plans, lots of plans. Uh, but I think it, during COVID, it has really reminded me that God brought us to this place for relationships and love first. And my plans that have been prayed over and, you know, brought on mission with me, are there, um, but we are really learning how to walk in those relationships and build those relationships, um, and it's been a really actually kind of beautiful thing. So um, that's a little bit about us. It's about who we are, um, where we're going. I'm excited to see that you guys are entering into a time of talking about Romans. Um, we spend a lot of time in the books that Paul wrote, and so I think Romans is a beautiful um, expression of the things that he had to say, and so I'm excited for you guys about that. I'm excited about um, y'all being in these book studies. I think there's nothing better than going through a book together and learning together and learning how Christ has called us in those spaces. Um, so that's great. And we're so happy to be here today. So we're going to kind of get started. Um, dig in. Forgive me because I am, as always, almost the oldest person in this room. And so I'm like, do I have this Do I have this big enough to see way down here? I don't know. So anyways, forgive me if I'm bent over uh, trying to read it. But incarnational presence, right? That's what we do. It's what we all do. It's not just me. It's not just the yellow door house, right? We are all called into an incarnational presence with our neighbor, okay? Um, and so a lot of times we go to this verse, and I'm going to go to it because it's a good one. John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. It's a whole word in one verse. Um, the thing about that is we saw the glory with our own eyes. Incarnational presence brings the opportunity for those that will not walk into our spaces to see the glory of God through you. Like, what a amazing opportunity. Like, it's a little bit nuts and also a little bit um, intimidating, if I'm being completely honest, right? Um, but it's just, I hope that when you hear that, you understand and you feel this connection. I think it so connects us um, to the Holy Spirit 
I think it makes me feel very rooted in what the Holy Spirit is doing and the way that he has um, laid my steps before me. He has gone before me. I'm simply coming in along behind, but I'm coming in in such a way because the Holy Spirit is a part of me that others may see the glory of God, okay? So in that... Jesus is here, right? Like, that's what this verse is about. The word has become flesh. Jesus has come down. He has moved into the neighborhood. Now what? (laughs) Right? Now what? Like, I'm here. I'm here. Now what? Um, And so I'm going to touch on a couple of things today. There are a thousand things we could talk about when it comes to incarnational presence. And here's the thing. It is such, it is as individual as each and every one of you. Okay. As individual as the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, your height, all the things. It is as individual as you. So when I talk about this, I want you to know that these things are um, a part of who God has made me right? And so they may fit for you, or you may go, I don't know how to make that fit. Um, And so I think trying to, it's really, I hope today is just an encouragement as you dig through scripture, as we go through the gospels, as we see those years of ministry between Jesus, the disciples, and the people, that we look for areas and we go, there's something in my spirit that feels that, that understands that, like, that's um, a direction that I need to press into. I need, I need to look more into that. I need to read about that harder. And then I would really encourage you to find the people who have gone before you. Find the people who understand that feeling about that particular um, verse or scripture or that particular incident that we're talking about or situation and ask them questions. Like, how did you do this? How did this practically play out? Um, But I'm going to give you a couple examples of that this morning, and we'll kind of talk through what that looks like. So first example is Mark 5, 25 through 34. And um, this is going to be, both of these will be um, situations that you've heard before. We're not talking anything new this morning. Um, So this says, and a woman was there. Jesus was in a crowd of people. Um, his disciples were there, but there were a ton of people around him. And so we're going to meet the woman with the bleeding disorder. So, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? That's about the time I'd be like, oh, crap, (laughs) I've done it now. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Um, You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And, of course, Luke tells us that's Peter because Peter always has things to say. Um, And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, 
daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So what do we need to understand here? We have to understand the, um, the law at the time, the culture, right? We have to understand that this woman with this bleeding disorder was completely ostracized. She was unclean. You couldn't be around her. If she touched you, you were unclean, right? She has no community. And so we look at this story and we might think, okay, well, like, how does this fit with us, right? Because, like, I don't, I believe in the power of prayer, but I don't know that if I touch someone, they're just going to immediately be healed, right? It's like, I recognize that that is not exactly how this works, okay? So what about this relates to an incarnational presence? And so I would say it's these, the last few verses, right? It's this pause. It's the who touched me. He's not mad, okay? He wants to know. And anytime when you're reading scripture and Jesus asks a question, Jesus already knows the answer, Okay, he is both God and man. And in being fully God and fully man, he knows the answer to the question he's asking. So you got to ask yourself, why is he asking? It's important. So here's the thing. She's physically healed. That's what she's desperate for, y'all. It's been 12 years 12 years of bleeding, of going to doctors, of paying money. If you know anything about me and Mike, and if you don't, I'll tell you, we have had quite the um, five-year period in our household. Um, Mike experienced two strokes at 34, um, and it changed a lot about the trajectory of our lives. Um, I can completely understand and empathetically experience this woman's desperation. I get it. I'm sure many of y'all get it too. You've had a family member of yourself who has been really, really ill and doctors are just looking at you like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. You've been through a million answers. You know, here, let's try this or this. And it just brings you to a point of despair and desperation that's really hard to explain but he doesn't leave her there. He can physically heal her, and, and he does. Um, her faith heals her. That's what he says, right? Your faith has healed you. But what does he do that really, I think, presses into what we're talking about today is that he not only physically heals her, he socially heals her as well. He is the rabbi. Spencer talked about that earlier. He came as a rabbi and as a teacher. And in that, and in this moment, he's surrounded by people who are desperate to hear what he has to say, who are interested and locked in and love him and just think that he is all that, right? And in front of all of those people, he calls her daughter. He says, you are healed. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering, he doesn't just give her her heart's desire of physical healing. He understands the holistic needs of the situation that she's in, and he works to address them. That is what you see as biblical advocacy. Advocacy happens on a lot of levels, okay? In this certain instance, it's a very personal one. It's her specifically. Out of that... If we were there, if we were in the story, if we're watching this happen, if we are followers of Jesus who are learning from him, 
What's the next step? The next step in my mind would be to invite her for dinner, right? Have her in, her, in your home. Have her around your family. Because what does that show? It shows that you understand what Jesus said on that day. You are healed and you are free. She's not a threat. I know the law has things to say, but she is no longer a threat. She has been healed. She is clean and she is whole and she is welcome in your community because the heart of biblical advocacy is to renew and redeem relationships within communities. That's what it's about, y'all. And so whether we're advocating on a systemic level or we're advocating on a personal level, if we want to do it with the heart of Jesus, our goal has got to be to bring people back into community. Jesus came to redeem our relationship with God. He died on the cross. And in doing so, he redeemed us in our relationship with the Lord. But as he walked on this earth, incarnationally present, Fully God, fully man, he worked to not only redeem the relationship with God, but also the relationship with our community. And that is the space that I would encourage you guys to step into. I, um, (laughs) miraculously and (laughs) completely through Jesus, managed to finish my undergraduate degree 20 years after I started it in 2021, okay? Okay. Praise the Lord, that is done. I'm also now looking at MBAs, which I just need to, you know, take a minute. Anyway, it'll be fine. Point being, I um, had a really wonderful, uh, like, I don't know, they don't call them guidance counselors in college. Anyways, counselor, she was helping me figure out my classes, right? And so I'm getting down towards the end, and I've literally taken no classes for my minor. And she says, what do you want to do? Like, what classes do you want to take? And I thought about it, and I prayed about it. And I said, I think I want to minor in criminal justice. Now, I am a nonprofit (laughs) business administration major. And she's like, you want to do what? (laughs) Like, why? Here's what I understood about my community. There are two main systems that affect my community. I would argue that one of them is one that affects almost every community. um, But you know your neighborhood better. So I encourage you to really think about this. The two for my community are the mental health system and the justice system. Okay, I understand the mental health system from the inside out. I I have shared with y'all my story before, but I am intimately aware of that system. Not that you can't still learn, because you absolutely can, and I spend a lot of time reading and learning from those who um, are professionals in that, but I have a very good understanding, okay? If I need to advocate for someone in that system, I know the steps that I need to take. The criminal justice system, I am not as aware of, okay? I've never been arrested, never even been pulled over for a traffic stop. The average person in my neighborhood gets pulled over at least three times a year for having done nothing. (laughs) Now, I can relationally understand that. I can hear them tell me about their experiences, about what they go through, about the times that they have been over-policed simply because of the color of their skin and the excuses that have been used for that. But what I wanted was to go past just my relational understanding and into a place where I could actually advocate for them. But I cannot do that without education. And so that's what I sought out. 
it's a, it's a minor, okay, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> but it is an understanding of um, what is really affecting my community. What does it mean when I have a child, a student, who has a parent that is in federal prison on three strikes you're out, on drug charges that are beyond trumped up, but that's a whole other conversation. But he's going to come home in two years. He cannot come home. They live in Section 8 housing. He's not allowed. He's, he is a convicted felon. He cannot come home, okay? He cannot vote, and his ability to get a job is going to be severely affected. I, as someone who loves my community, as someone who loves my neighbors, can't just sit back and go, oh, well, that's kind of a problem, right? Because God's called me into bringing back community, to renew, to redeem your relationships with the community. And frankly, between the mental health system and the justice system, there's few things that will separate you from community faster, so I don't know what your things are. I don't know what your neighborhood's like. I, I don't know. But find it. Figure it out. Do the work. Read the census report. It's about to come out. It'll tell you a lot. Okay? Um, and here's, here's the thing. Like, no matter what, it might be as simple as saying, um, you know, somebody in your community is really struggling with anxiety and depression, it's so isolating, right? Like we pull away so quickly from our community because that's what depression tells you. Like you're not worth it. You're um, too, too much trouble. Um, your friends aren't gonna love you through this. Like nobody's gonna be there for you. It is a lie after lie after lie from the devil, right? And so sometimes we just need someone who says like, I know you hear these things. They're not true come back, that recognizes the isolation and says, come back, come, come, come join us. We want you here. We care and love about you. And they might not believe you the first time you say it. You might need to say it over and over and over, and you might need to give that invitation over and over and over, and that's okay. Find that space of individual advocacy and systematic advocacy. They're both biblical. They're both needed. I'd encourage you in that. So, moving on to Jesus uh, in his second situation. One of the things that I love about the Gospels is it's either Jesus talking in parables, which are just fascinating, right? Like, they're kind of these crazy things that sometimes it's like, I really don't understand what he's talking about. Um, but he's talking, and so we're listening. Or it's just this wild ride of situation after situation that's just, like, I'm fascinated by the Gospels and the way that Jesus and the disciples interact with people. Um, so I hope that you feel that this morning. But we're going to talk about Lazarus. We're actually not going to talk about Lazarus. We're going to talk about Lazarus's sisters. Um, their story is in John 11, 17 through 36. Or, I'm sorry, 21 through 36. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Y'all been talking about I am statements, I hear. So you probably heard that one. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews Excuse me. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is an accusation. Okay, she is not um, like gently like, gosh, Lord, if you had been here, like everything would be, no, 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 girl coming in hot, (laughs) right? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Where have you been? That's the unquestioned question, right? Where have you been? You said you were going to come heal him. You didn't show up. Where have you been? I don't know about you, but when I think about seeing Jesus face to face, I don't really think about coming in hot with accusations. <laughs> Maybe I would. I don't know. I, y'all, y'all know me. I can't have my moments. But um, in general, that just doesn't really seem like the starting place for where I'm coming in. Anyways, so when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we have the sacred pause. That is what I would call what happens next. And it says, Jesus wept. There's all kinds of crazy emotion happening in these few verses, right? Um, I think one of the things that we do sometimes, and we don't do it on purpose, but it's just easy to do, is that we see this collection, and we think of them as stories with characters instead of retelling of actual events with real people. And I think we do it a disservice when we do that. Um, Because if you read it, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Instead of with all the emotion that she would have said it, you don't hear what caused Jesus to weep right? If someone's standing in front of me and they're like, yeah, you know, my brother passed away and it's just something I'm still dealing with, I'm probably not going to like automatically just start crying, (laughs) you know? Um, I think of myself as a pretty empathetic person and like that probably wouldn't like set me off. Um, But if somebody comes in and they're just so emotionally distraught, there is an empathetic response that those of us that are all called to incarnational presence, which, like I said, is all of us, will have. And he had it. And I think sometimes we go, well, why? Like, he can just fix it. He's going to fix it, right? Like, if you know the story, like, Jesus goes to the tomb and he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
He's going to fix it, right? He has the power to fix it. Sometimes you will have the power to fix things and sometimes you won't. That's not the point, okay? I'm not telling you not to fix it. If you can fix it, you should fix it. What I'm telling you, though, is that there is a, a pause in this moment. He very much reads the room. Martha comes off as a little bit calmer. She's very focused on, like, the, um, and I think it's very a very healthy place. She's very focused on, like, eternal life, right, that we're all promised through Jesus Christ our Lord, okay? So it's not an unhealthy thing to be focused on. She's upset, but she still has some, she still has some perspective. Um, Mary, like, she's, she's, she is not there, right? She hadn't gotten there. Doesn't mean she wouldn't, but she hasn't yet. And so I think that's the thing is to really understand that Jesus reads both of them very well because he listens. He hears what they say. He responds in kind. But here's the thing. So Mary and Martha are unwed sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is the oldest man in their family. They count on him for everything. The kind of trauma that we're talking about here is not just in the death of, his, of their brother, right? They love their brother. I'm sure they did. Um, he's passed away and they're upset, but it's more than that, right? Their um, housing, their clothing, their food, their very livelihood depends on the eldest man in their family, that's how their culture works. And so they have experienced the trauma of losing a family, a close family member that is a lot, right? But then we're pancaking trauma on top of that. And that's really where trauma gets very hard to deal with a lot of times is you have like this kind of initial piece to it. And then there's this realization of like, how am I going to, how am I going to get food? How am I going to, you know, survive? Like, how am I going to do this in this culture that says that men are up here and women are down here? And that's just the way it works, right? And so you experience this trauma. So here's the thing. You can't just fix that kind of trauma, bringing Lazarus back from the dead does not mean that um, Mary and Martha have not experienced that trauma. Just because you fix it doesn't mean that all of those emotions and hormones and um, just rewiring of their brains hasn't happened. You have to undo that. And so how do you undo that? It takes time. It takes patience. It takes weeping. In this moment, whether Lazarus is raised from the dead or not, they know that Jesus, who is their friend, their confidant, their teacher, their rabbi, is with them. Whether he raises them from the dead or not, he's emotionally connected to them. He is empathetically involved with them. There's so much power in sitting in other people's pain. It's not comfortable, okay? It's, it's not, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be in pain. I'm, like, I would avoid pain just like the next person, right? And some of us, especially when we enter into painful situations that are very close, like something that we've ourselves experienced, it can be even, even harder. And so in that this is a side note from what we're talking about, but I encourage you to do the work on yourself, 
okay? We have to do the mental health work within our own selves and our own traumas and our own experiences in order to find ourselves in the position of weeping with those who weep. If we look at this situation today, we see people all the time who you look at it and go like, okay, but like you're not in that situation any longer. There's victims of abuse who no longer live in households with their abusers. Um, There's soldiers who have come back from war. There's um, all kinds of people who have experienced real and true trauma and are no longer in that situation. And that is the first step, right, to to be able to remove yourself, to not um, be re-traumatized over and over. That is a first step, and it's a good one. However, we recognize um, PTSD is real. You will have to deal with the trauma even when you're removed from the situation. Jesus was also not afraid to step into the hard part. Um, He didn't rebuke her for her very heavy-handed accusations. Um, He didn't shy away from the emotion pouring of tears and the empathetic response of that signal things to her traumatized brain that words in that moment would not be able to do. And so sometimes it isn't that you're going to weep. Sometimes it's just that you're going to be quiet. Sometimes it is just the stillness that understands Uh, that this is what is needed. It is the very literal presence and stillness in a space of pain. In both of those stories, I would say this. Our words and our actions have power. We're given power through the Holy Spirit. He is a part of us. Um, We are fueled through our connection with the Holy Spirit. You have to be prayed up. You have to be prepared. That's the thing about incarnational ministry. I can go from laughing with second graders and reading books to having very, very, very difficult conversations with people who are experiencing great pain in the matter of an hour. Like it happens to me pretty regularly, which is fine. Um, but I have to be prayed up. I, I have to be prepared. I have to be um, in Scripture enough that what flows out of me is not of me. Um, if it's in my own self, it will never be what the other person needs. What the other pe- person needs is Jesus. It's what we all need. Okay, so um, find the time, the connection through prayer, through scripture, through your own community um, to really be prepared for those situations because we must be intentional in those times. We must be driven by the Holy Spirit. Uh, One of the things that I've learned in my time is that praying without ceasing 
is a very literal thing. And there are so many times that someone's talking to me and I'm hearing what they're saying very much, but I'm also praying like, please, Lord, just let my words and my actions be of you. It's as simple as that. Like, whatever comes from this, um, don't let me rush to try and fix it. Don't let me rush through what they're saying. Don't let me rush them and their emotions and what they're trying to share. Simply let what I say and what I do be of you. Um, it's that simple and that difficult, right? Um, I have spoken a lot this morning about doing, and so I hope that those examples of what that can look like are helpful to you. I hope that you're able to um, use them, and like I said before, we are all our own person, so I want you to find who you are in this incarnational space that we've all been called to, um, and I want you to really deeply dive into that. I encourage that. Um, but I cannot leave this morning without saying that we are called to um, enter the throne room on behalf of our communities. We must be on our knees praying for our communities. And I'll tell you right now, there's this, and rightfully so, this very big discussion happening around thoughts and prayers, right? It's hard. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we live in a world that has turned thoughts and prayers into a euphemism rather than an action. That's problematic, okay? Um, advocacy starts with prayer. Do not step into a space of systematic or personal advocacy without first being on your knees because you can make it worse. Okay? You can hurt people. We can all hurt people. We all hurt people. It's going to happen. But if we do what God's called us to do, if we step into prayer, if we um, genuinely, genuinely seek after what God has called us to in these spaces, genuinely seek after when are the times for us to be quiet and listen? When are times for us to act? When are times for us to speak in spaces that we have a voice in? When are times to empower voices that sometimes aren't heard? When is it time to give up our seat at the table to somebody else because they're more needed than we are? You won't know that without prayer. <laughs> you aren't going to have a clue. I don't have a clue. I don't, I, mean, I don't know, right? And so we need to be guided in those times through prayer. We need to be praying for our communities. We need to be praying for specific people in our communities. We need our neighbors to know that when they say, I've got this thing going on and I just, just need somebody to pray for us, that we are doing it daily. It must start with prayer. It must. Um, so we've talked about a lot this morning. I don't know if I've gone over. Forgive me if I have. <laughs> um, I would love for us to take a few minutes. So in our community, like I said, we, we believe in collective learning. So I've done a lot of talking this morning, which makes me somewhat uncomfortable. Um, so I want you guys to take a few minutes. You've got neighbors. If there's something that the Holy Spirit's like, that part, that, that part was for me. I want you to talk about it with them. Um, we're just going to take about five minutes. Look at your neighbor, 
talk through it. Um, if you're something that you're like, that was not it, then you can talk about that too. It won't hurt my feelings, I promise. Um, but yeah, so take five minutes, have a little conversation. Hopefully this conversation moves out of this room as well. But I wanted to give you guys time to be able to do that and to kind of experience the types of settings that we try and create at the Yellow Door House.